0: are tuning into Latino politics and news with Tony Diaz on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston, Texas. The era of hispandering is over. You are tuning into Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. The issue regarding opening schools in the fall during a COVID-19 epidemic is a Latino issue. Here in Texas, Latinos form over 52% of the 5.2 million public school students. That means going back to school or not and how you do it in the fall affects our community profoundly. Additionally, as reports have shown, Our community is disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 epidemic. We want to make sure that the concerns of our community are taken into account as these decisions are made. To help us break this down, we'll be talking to two Latino school board members who are going to be making these decisions. At the top of the show, we'll speak with Agustin Loredo III, who is a board of trustee at the Goose Creek Independent School District. He'll also be talking about a possible name change to Robert E. Lee High School. Think about all the issues he has to juggle. I want you to know, too, that he's a community member and also a Libro Traficante. In the second half of the show, we'll talk to Xavier Herrera, who is a school board member for the Stafford Municipal School District. He's also a mentor to many and a big friend of the show, and a big advocate for Mexican-American studies. He's gonna give us his insights into what the implications are for school in the fall for our community. We want to thank our crew for donating their cultural capital to the show. Letty Lopez, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixes the show remotely, Claudia Soler Alfonso, Jesse Iranda Comer, our summer intern to Rice University, Antonio Diaz, another summer intern, Lauri Flores, Stefano Cavasa, and El Castillo, president of Lulet Council 60. This is Tony Diaz with Latino Politics and News every Tuesday here on KPFT 90.1 FM. Join us for Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having to Say Tuesdays too, and look for me Sundays on What's Your Point on Fox 26 Houston. Thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>
1: Si le quiero
0: Thanks for tuning into Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. Today, we continue our examination of going back to school policies. We are talking to Latino school board members because this is a Latino issue in many different ways. To help break that down and to give us an idea of what's going to look like on the ground, is someone who's making decisions. Right now, he's a friend of the show and he is currently a Goose Creek CISD Board of Trustee since 2016. He's currently serving as president of the board. His name is Agustin Loredo III. He's a product of Goose Creek Schools and graduated from Lee High School back in 1992. He graduated from Lee College with an associate's degree in communications and then from the University of Houston with a bachelor's degree in radio, television and broadcasting and a minor in Market studies. He's employed as a teacher at South Houston High School, where he's also the head coach. Of course, if you follow Nuestra Palabra, Latino Politics and News, or the Libra Traficantes, you also know... He was active in helping us defy Arizona's ban of Mexican-American studies. He is a Libre traficante and additionally a big proponent of fighting for Mexican-American studies and ethnic studies across Texas and the U.S. Welcome back to the show.
2: Thank you so much, Tony. I appreciate it. So today we've
0: got two big issues to tackle. As we sift through different policies about going back to school in the fall, what are the implications, especially for the Latino community, I want people to understand this is a profoundly Latino issue in Texas because we are 52% of the student body. Additionally, at the second half of the interview, I also want to dive into the whole issue of renaming Robert E. Lee High School dramatic pause in Baytown, Texas because of all the examinations of structural discrimination that have been going on. Let's start with a breakdown of your school district. What's the percentage of Latinos? What's the percentage of black students? And what's the percentage of others?
2: Well, uh, right now, currently we have about 24,000 students with about 3,000 employees at Goose Creek, predominantly Latino school district. We're at about 60, mid 60s to late 60% um, Latino. Of the whole body,
0: you're saying in the mid, so we're talking maybe 64 to 67% are Latino.
2: Right. And actually, it's reflective of the future of Baytown. As of the last census, we were at about 47% in the city of Latino. But as you can tell with our school district numbers, the future of Baytown is, is dramatically changing and turning into minority majority here soon.
0: Wow. And for folks that don't have uh, any experience going to Baytown, roughly how far is it from Houston? Give people a sense of that.
2: We're about 20 miles east of Houston, down I-10 or down 225. And I think what's really
0: impressive to some folks may be just like you say, the demographic change that's going on throughout the city. Let's talk about who's in power. So tell us a little bit about the elected officials in Baytown, especially those who sit on the Goose Creek independent school district board how many of those are latino uh
2: we have one one latino and one african-american out of how many out of seven
0: okay I, i'm not gonna do the math quick i got a feeling that's not 67 percent. but okay
2: no no not at all
0: <laughs> <Another show laughs> that we dig into that um
2: you you mentioned though that a lot of the staff is latino It is. It's it's kind of every year we get a report, um, as as I'm sure every school district does, that has a breakdown of years served. And one of the things that we look at is racial profile of our district and those jobs that are professional, administrative, teacher and things of that sort are very low minority. Very, very low minority. But when you get into more of the service, for example, teacher aides, cafeteria workers, custodians, groundspeople, bus drivers, those numbers tend to fly up when it comes to minorities.
0: I'll make a note here, future show staff across all schools in Texas and makeup of staff. We can't even dive into that. And I know you're a community advocate, so you're the real deal. What's it looking like and what's the Latino perspective on this? So give us any decisions that have been made about going back to school in fall.
2: So I was I was pretty excited our board one of our board members asked some pretty good pointed questions at our superintendent and, the, and our administration about exactly when we go back to school And the, most superintendents they kind of run together we have a pretty solid superintendent he's been there for a few years I'm really proud of the of some of the board members that were really able to we were able to to hash out something where we're starting the day after Labor Day as as school starts and we're going to do virtual 3 weeks Now, I heard yesterday that there was an announcement release that they're allowing us to go up to six weeks of virtual now. So that'll be even better. My biggest concern, Tony, at this point is health and safety. The bottom line is, is that our president said he was going to open up schools or or threaten us with federal funds, which don't make up as much. I think maybe depending on the district is 15 to 20 percent of the total budget that the feds give. But he was going to convince the governors to also open schools, which it didn't take much for our governor to agree to it. Governor Abbott decided to open up the schools. And the problem with that is, is several issues. One of the, the biggest issue is with COVID, what they have found is the younger people aren't as easily infected with it or to show symptoms. But there's a couple of things to look at. Uh, number one, it was an article that came out when this inflammatory disease for that, that prim- primarily, I, if I remember correctly, teenagers were getting. And what was happening is that children that had been exposed to COVID before when they were re-exposed to COVID, the body, in order to fight off the, the virus, went into overdrive and was causing kids to, to get that syndrome. I can't pronounce it, but it's where your your organs become inflamed. And while it is, if you get to the hospital in time, it's, it's a fix. For a lot of people, especially our Latino population, sometimes insurance isn't an option and going to the doctor is a real effort. In addition to that, you look at situations like our teacher's. Who, you know, because of our age, get a little a bit older, you get a little bit more, more susceptible to disease. Uh, they also are a huge risk factor. In fact, they're saying that COVID is creating diabetes. And so if you weren't diabetic before, in some cases, the way that COVID affects organs, they have found that some people became diabetic. You add the factor that what I, what we just talked about, where a lot of the minorities in this, in this situation are our cafeteria workers, our AIDS our custodians our groundspeople people people that don't make the same amount of money as our admin and our teachers they might not be able to afford insurance and we have a huge problem on our hands based on the perception of our governor
0: that's heavy duty especially because we know that there's a high <coughs> incidence of diabetes in the latino community anyway which is right. a factor that m- makes it harder to fight this this illness additionally as you pointed out There's a lot of economic factors, especially in the Latino community, for going to see doctors, if there's additional cost. We can't even get into the whole issue of, well, what are the long-term effects? Well, someone that's very young in their formative period suffering this disease, what are the effects 10 years, 20 years down the line? And you alluded to some of them not showing symptoms. Well, they go home, and then if it's a multi-generational family... It complicates the the older folks I I tell you what we've touched on that and I also kind of want to run through these issues because we don't have a lot of time and I can imagine what it's like for you who has to make decisions that will be acted upon and we don't have all the information but you gotta balance a lot of different issues because then let me ask you this The president wanted schools to stay open. It's my understanding, though, that there were not additional funds or training allowed. And in fact, I will say this, the threat to take money away from schools really reminds me of what the uh, Republicans did in Arizona when they banned Mixed American Studies. And they said that if you implement this course, we will penalize you with funding and take 10% of your funding away uh, per month. Let me ask you this. What are some of the costs that we just don't know about that you'll, we, you will incur when you open come fall, regardless of when you open?
2: We don't have anywhere near the numbers that HISD has. And I've been on a few Zoom meetings, especially during the spring and and listening to elected officials at the state level and to school board members. And the biggest issue is technology. I mean, if we're going to go virtual, what the state is asking is for our kids to log in when teachers log in, which is probably the, the best way to do it so that we can take role and the kids if they have any questions with their work they're the teachers right there in front of them but the problem is is what kind of technology are we going to hand our kids i mean if we're not giving them state-of-the-art equipment that works every time the other biggest factor is connectivity if they don't have internet access a lot of uh, surveys like to tout that well you know we have 86 percent internet access according to our families but internet access is what For a family, when you ask them that, it may be the internet access on their cell phone. I'm sorry, that's that's not internet access to that family. That may be, yeah, I can check my internet on my, I have internet on my phone, but that's not internet on a on a on a tablet or on a computer. In addition to that, you have multi-family, multi children in a family, and they're trying to access at the same time, and the bandwidth because they don't have a lot of money, and they can't afford the the right amount of bandwidth, or they don't, they can't afford internet at all. Then we're we're finding those situations as well. The the killer here is, and the ironic part about this, Tony, is this, this started off as, and I hate to say it this way, but as a as a wealthy disease, as a disease of the wealthy, because it was it was primarily people that were traveling around, business people, a upper high CEO kind of people that were going around and traveling the world and bringing this disease over. Well, we found out quick that it didn't end up as a as a disease that hits the wealthy. It's a disease that's run rampant in our community. And not only is this not good health-wise, but it's not good academically. Because once again, the people at the bottom, our people at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale, are going to be the ones that are not going to have access to uh, the same equitable education. They're not going to have access to opportunity. Our seniors that are graduating are not going to have access to bring up those GPAs. I mean, we've already had to make adjustments on AP scores. My daughter, who was is, was waiting to take her CNA uh, license, wh- which was supposed to be in April, now has to wait till September to take the thing. And she hasn't been in a class since March. She's been doing reviews online through the end of the semester. But the reality is that you're not in the classroom and you're learning things that, that affect your career, that are jumping or stepping stones towards your career. Later, she wants to be a nurse, and not just my daughter, but every student that was that was hoping to get a certification in our district. All of a sudden, we have to kind of pause and see what happens. And honestly, once again, I look at the TA. I looked at every day. We we know the answer. You know the answer. I know the answer. It's not hard to look at the fact that what happens when you open the country too 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 quickly. What what are the consequences? We're living them. We knew this was going to happen a month and a half ago and we opened anyway. And who is the one that suffers in the end? Our children and our our employees that are being forced to go back to work.
0: That's intense. I I think I want to pick your brain further though because you're also a classroom teacher. What I've been theorizing is that it seems that at the local level there's not funding or capacity to develop something that you mentioned that would be a new delivery system, a new way to teach online. <coughs> to make that uniform. It seems that that would have to come from the federal level because they would have funds for that, perhaps more networking abilities. And it seems that they should come up with that mandate because on top of that, let me get your insights into, I'm under the impression that it's easy to find the kids where this works. The, the kids who are doing well online are logging in, they have access to the internet, their families understand English, they have someone to help them with homework, they have someone to say, hey listen, I got an email, you're not doing the homework, get to the work. So those may be easier to find. Is is that the case with our community members? Are our, our community members for the most part the ones falling through the cracks? So how can the feds help? And, how hard is it to find the folks that fall through the cracks?
2: Well, I, I don't know if you, if you heard about what happened to our CARES Act money. It was kind of uh, reduced greatly by the state, by the Texas, by TEA, Texas Education Agency. The feds, I mean, honestly, once again, I'm, I'm trying to be very nice and not using any political party to, to say anything. But we have Betsy DeVos, who has no experience in education, doesn't know what to fund doesn't know how to fund it and is making decisions for the future of our country. I've said this to people before. You cannot run a country on taxes being charged to people that work at minimum wage jobs. And that's what we're creating. We're essentially allowing our students to fall into the cracks so badly that at the end of the day if they're not working in an industry that, you know, where they, they put their lives at risk such as the petrochemical industry where you get paid well but you're putting your life at risk you're working in an area where you don't make a lot of money and that's not and that's us that's depending on us as adults as people that vote as people that we expect the people that we vote for to have make good conscious decisions to help fund these things we there's no funding mechanism that Washington has given towards our students and it's not fair i mean they hold us hostage for things that we're not even responsible for And there's this idea that you get all that money from our taxes. I don't think people understand that the way that works is we collect taxes for the state. Then we send it to the state and we get a tiny bit back.
0: So what would be the best way to proceed, do you think, once fall comes, especially as we try and communicate with a large Latino student body, some of whom need different attention, some of whom need service in Spanish?
2: Well, that's that's a big part. First of all, I think there needs to be a total... We need to really put the cards on the table when it comes to health and safety. I think people need to understand that, first of all, we live in a state that doesn't garnish your wages from, for, being, for going to the hospital. As horrible as that may sound to some people, but I'll, I'll be honest with you. I had a student who communicated with me that his father had COVID. And because he didn't have any kind of documentation, he didn't know where to take his dad. Mm. And I said, take him to the nearest hospital. Your dad needed the father had diabetes. Well, three days later, his father died, mm. and the kid didn't know what to do. I, I said, "Man, are you okay?" He goes, "I don't know what to do," because the whole family had COVID, and, you know, and now they're having to worry about burying their father. It's it's not fair. It's not right. So I, I think the first thing we need to do is is forget all this. You know, you don't have insurance. You don't belong here. You do belong here, and that doesn't matter. We're talking about human life. I mean, this country was based on. You know, we like to tell. The whole thing about one nation under god well then let's add let's act like like let's have some godliness and be good to our fellow man no matter what the background is no matter what the religion is the gender is the the races let's be productive and tell people if you need help go to the hospital and that needs to be communicated in spanish one of the things that i greatly admire about lina hidalgo is the fact that she doesn't care. She just goes off and starts talking in Spanish because I I think at the end of the day, yeah, you can be right or you can be dead right, man. At least help me get the water out of the boat because you can't stand on the sidelines and say, well, those people don't deserve it. This is a disease that doesn't discriminate. This disease goes after anybody and everybody. You know, unfortunately, I had it in April and it was one of the most horrible experiences I went through in my adult life. And I don't wish it on anybody. And luckily, I didn't have to go to the hospital. But there's a lot of people that are hesitant to go to the hospital and need to go. It, it's so difficult because the leadership will not bend to the wills of those of the experts. So consequently, there's this false narrative that gets spread on social media that because you know our leaders aren't wearing masks, we don't have to wear masks. Because our leaders will say things like we can't enforce it, then we don't enforce the mask wearing. So it's not that big of a deal, you know. It's it's like the flu. It's it's like the chickenpox—it's not this thing kills. And I think I saw an interview with Governor Cuomo in New York when when they were getting hit really bad. And they asked him, he goes, "What about the economy? Isn't that important?" And he said, "Yes, the go- economy is very important. But you know what else is very important? People not dying." And I think that that really needs to be the message that our leaders give out. And honestly, I don't see it. I mean, it's kind of weird. A lot of most school board members obviously are are people in... When the power structure are white and I have never and and there it seems like there's this big coalition to call out these people and say, stop doing this to our families.
0: And I do want to add that I don't see you as getting political because you're stating facts. Additionally, as you said, we have to put all the cards on the table and. A other A few other issues. I'm trying to resist diving into all those issues because you brought up a lot of interesting points. But one thing you mentioned, too, is that in the past, Texas schools have really strongly guided some Latino students toward the oil industry, which is now in a tailspin. And my hearts go out to all those folks that have established careers in that field, but the ground has moved beneath them. So that's what gets complicated and the last thing I'll say about this, and I'll let you have a closing word about that because I do want to get to the, the name change issue. Um, let's, not make, let's not get political. You mentioned Bessie DeVos. She is also on the president's Hispanic Prosperity Initiative. He did an executive order on the Hispanic Prosperity Initiative. And part of that covers education. It seems to me that if we're going to talk about Hispanic-serving institutes or advancing education among Latinos— The issues you brought up should be laser focused on. If that happens, we can say that there's not politics involved. But I think right now, from your assessment, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, the Latino community's needs are not being considered as we move forward and this is dangerous for our community. I'm gonna give you the final word on that because I do wanna talk about the name change, possible name change for Robert A. Lee High School. Uh, Closing thoughts on that issue?
2: Oh, I, I just want everybody to understand that that in order for us to make change, I mean, right now as we speak, the the T A. What seems like every, once a week or once every couple of weeks, the TEA, Mike Morath and the T A. and the governor keep changing their status because it keeps getting a little bit worse. And really, I, I really want to speak to the people that have pressured our our elected officials, and that goes from school board all the way to the governor. Please continue to advocate for our students, cause, for our teachers, for our staff, because God forbid that one person – it, I'll be honest with you, and this is an ugly way to look at it, but honestly, it's not – if we get a, an outbreak, it's – if you open up schools, it's when we get an outbreak. You know, right now we have athletics, people are out there playing, getting ready for football, the UIO will not will not make a decision per se if, if a team goes – Gets an out COVID outbreak. We are playing with people's lives, and we, as as people, as as Latinos, as people that that care about life, need to continue to press on our politicians to make positive and good choices.
0: Powerful words. Insert dramatic pause. You get five seconds to recalibrate. <laughs> We're trying to dramatize <laughs> what your to do list must look like and decisions you have to make. Because now I want to talk about this possible name change. Of course, you have a high school in Baytown, which is predominantly minority school district, and it's named Robert E. Lee High School. And of course, in this era where we are examining structural discrimination across the board, many institutions have changed their names when they were named after Confederate figures. Break us down on what's happening in Baytown.
2: So we <clears throat> this is something that have been that has been asked for me. I've been on the board since about two thousand six and they've asked me throughout those times about changing the high school name and my, my answer was always like when you get a, a, a group of a bigger group of people we, we can't react on individuals. My personal opinion is, is is shared with them because I you know, I mean I, I see the the in the injustice in, in having our African American brothers and sisters, and, and even our Latinos and, and everybody else going to this school that represents that's being represents this person that was treacherous to our country he was he was treason- he caused he, he was treasonous and and also whether he believed it personally because I keep trust me I've heard all the narratives the fact that it remains that he defended the the state's rights to own slaves. You can say he did whatever you want, but at the end, you always have to add to own slaves. And that's something that, that we're beyond that. I'm not saying the guy doesn't have a, a place in history. I don't, in my opinion, not a very good one. But the fact of the matter is, put him in a book. I mean, you know, the you you yourself knows that the TA, um, until recently, changed for the next adoption of history books because the books currently in classrooms still say that slaves were brought in as migrant labor. And we all know that's not true. The narrative gets changed to the to the ability of whoever controls it. And honestly, it's time. Now we have an upswelling of people that want the name changed. And honestly, Tony, one of the biggest arguments that, that we hear is, well, you know, if you're going to change one, you have a bunch of them. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, we got Ross S. Sterling. That guy was a member of the KKK. You know, we got Ashville Smith, and they're the Asheville Smith Indians. I mean, you got a double whammy there you have a ton of of uh, schools and streets yeah they keep asking where are you going to stop though when you change all that maybe if it's possible we're starting with robert e lee somebody asked me to say well he wasn't that bad and i said you're trying to say he might have been a good man yeah he was a good man you know within the confederacy and my answer to that is you know um do you think there were good men in the nazi party mm. and that immediately causes a stop they're like what i'm like yeah do you think there were good nazis I'm like, well, well, no. I said, well, of course not, because they knew what they were doing to the Jewish people and to the people of, of that were of, of different genders. And the people that were were Roma people, they were and people that were had mental and, and physical handicaps. They were killing them in the in the Holocaust. So there's no good Nazis. No, there's not. I said, well, very good for the African-American Groups in Bay in Houston, in I'm sorry, in Baytown and in the country, it's the same thing, because they committed cultural genocide, in addition to killing a ton of African Americans and enslaving them. And uh, honestly, the cultural genocide, I mean, I I don't know. I hear people and I, and I can't understand their ignorance. They think that Africa is just one big nation and that all black people are. Are the same because they came from the same place? No, that's not true. They had nations that went to war just like in Europe, just like in every continent. In Asia, they have every continent, they have nations. But a lot of people don't see it that way when it comes to to the slavery issue. So the time for change is now. It, 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 it's just now we have, guess what, now we have an upswelling of movement that's able to do this. What, what many people have thought about many, many years of doing. So it sounds like
0: you have community support for a name change. What's it look like for the voting members on the school board? Because I
2: can do they have the last say? Is that who has the last say? Yes, they do. Honestly, the the school board. I can't speak for any of my other board members. I know there's there's one that um, one of our my fellow board members uh, Shay Cotter has been very has been vocal within the community through Facebook through other means. There's people. There's a we used to have an African American high school. Uh, Carver High School, which, in all honesty, it's the school that won the most cha- state championships. I think Sterling is the only other one in our three traditional high schools that has uh, that has a water polo championship at the state level. But Carver won many state championships. We just named our our soon to be junior sixth junior high after the most prominent principal at Carver, Mr. E. F. Green, which was an African American leader. Um, you know they they have a strong presence, and there's a lot of groups. In Baytown, they want to see this change, not just African-Americans. And given the amount of problems that we've had, you know, we had the Pamela Turner issue, the African-American lady that was murdered by a police officer last year here in Baytown that uh, we're waiting for the DA to pick up the case. Uh, we've had a couple of other issues with excessive force. I think it's kind of one of these things like a perfect storm where things are just aligning. And honestly, it, it, it's time. We have the our two of our three biggest of our three major high schools are named after people that were either slave owners or discriminate against African-Americans that practice Jim Crow laws. And when I was on the board when we named our third high school, Goose Creek Memorial, and it was really down to Goose Creek Memorial or Sam Houston. And I was not going to name another school after another slave owner. I had enough of that. So
0: yeah, it's coming. Is there a scheduled vote for this yet? Is it on the agenda
2: for the school board yet? It is. And, and there's an opposition. There's a, a large group that wants to keep the name. They, they definitely, and there are people that think that just because their family's been here for 50, 60 years, they get to do that. Honestly, Tony, I'll be honest with you. My, my father was repatriated. You know, my dad was born here in Baytown in 1930 and was deported back to Mexico during repatriation. But his cousin stayed, and my family got here in the 20s. So I got a little bit of years. Every time people tell me that, They say, oh, well, you know, my family got here. And I said, well, really? Because my family got here in the 20s. At the end of the day, it don't matter how long your family's been here. It's about doing the right thing.
0: What date might this come up?
2: I think the the earliest date I saw was August 3rd. Um, The other side's getting a little frisky. I mean, they've threatened um, the only other minority board member, which is uh, my good friend, Howard Sanson. He's African-American. And he didn't even say anything. Only said, hey, people keep sending me letters. Can we talk about this? And he said that in an open meeting, and all of a sudden, he and myself, which I have not put anything open on Facebook because I want the the thing to grow on its own, but they're threatening us with our position. Nobody else. They're threatening the two minorities. I got sent some screenshots where they're sitting there saying, you know, we'll get them at the end. I don't know what we'll get them. We'll get them out of office, and we'll get them. We'll show them. Show us what? At the end of the day, why do you... Get to decide. You don't go to school there. You graduated 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Why do you get to decide?
0: And why would they want to intimidate elected officials? Because there's it's vague so as to leave room for interpretation. It's also a veiled threat and an attempt to silence. Well, we'll follow yeah. up with that. Thank you for, for keeping us posted. We appreciate getting a working class on ethnic studies from Agustin Loredo the third. From the Goose Creek CISD Board of Trustees, also a teacher, and also down with the community. Thank you for calling in, Augustine, and thanks for all that you do for our students.
2: Thank you, Tony. You have a wonderful day, man. Appreciate you everything you do for us.
3: You know, that sometimes I think about us now and then, but I never wanna fall
4: again. Uh, you're not the case at all yeah, yeah, yeah
3: You're deep in water, you're drowning us You question my love like it's not enough But I hate that you know, you know, you know you got me tied up You regret it now, but it's your mistake What makes you think that my mind will change? And you hate that you know, you know, you know, you know you messed up One day you'll love me again me for sure. One day you wake up feeling how I've been feeling, baby, you knock at my door One day you love me again, Help me again to the end One day you beg me to try, one day you realize I'm more than your lover I'm more than your love, a I'm poquito your
4: friend Aceptate no yo quiero que te quedes conmigo Deja tus amigas y atrás, que nos vamos en un escondido Nos vamos pa' trucks en quejo, Y allí calmamos la cana
0: tuning into latino politics and news this is tony diaz we are going to continue our examination of back-to-school plans because this is totally a latino issue especially since in texas latino students make up over 52 percent of the student body we are joined on the air by an exemplary elected official xavier Herrera, is a buddy of mine on top of it He was elected to the Stafford Municipal School District Board of Trustees in 2015. He has served the board also in many capacities. On top of that, he is a member and a board member of the Mexican American School Boards Association, which is a major organization, and he's been able to get a lot of his students some scholarships through that advocacy. He's also proven himself over the years as an active and involved parent by being part of the PTO. And he's also served in a number of leadership positions with that organization. He's a product of Texas Public Schools. He believes in public service as a premium value in his life. Additionally, I know for a fact that he's advocated for Mexican-American studies and he's mentored so many folks in our community. Xavier, it's great for you to join us on the air. Thank you.
5: Thank you very much, Tony. I, I truly, honestly appreciate you allowing me the time to uh, speak with you here today. You and your listening audience. And you got your hands
0: full. I am really glad that you are an elected official at this time and representing us. Before we dive into what it looks like on the ground, give us an overview of Stafford Municipal School District as far as student body, the makeup, et cetera.
5: Yeah, so the Stafford Municipal School District, uh, you know, obviously everything changes from year to year, but it's roughly about between 36 to 3700 students. Total overall, um, we have an account uh, accountability rating of a B, um, and our our uh, our racial ethnic makeup of the student body uh, is um, is uh, Latino at forty seven percent. Uh, African-American at 43%, and then you kind of dip and dive, uh, you know, Anglos uh, and everybody else in between uh, with their percentages as well. So that's, that's pretty much what we have. We have a uh, an overall graduation rate um, of 93% as well.
0: That's a great rate, by the way. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Now, what does the school board do? makeup look like does it reflect the student
5: body well um the school board uh for trustees latino trustees there's out of seven there are two latino trustees three african-american uh trustees one anglo and one uh, south asian uh indian uh trustee
0: i'm not i'm not going to do the math but two is not 47 percent of seven so there's something to be done there there really is there really is and I say all this too because especially with 47% of the student body being Latino there's a lot of issues that affect our community as you look at what's the opening of schools will be run like what it will be like so what is it looking like for your school district come September
5: well I appreciate that question Tony I really am uh, you know I really am appreciative of this because you're allowing me the opportunity to talk to the uh, Talk to the, uh, the listening public there, um, and I'd imagine that there's a there, there's there's a few folks that uh, that come and hail from uh, Stafford, whether it's in Harris County or Fort Bend County, because we're split into two. But uh, right now, our school board is still deliberating that. Uh, obviously, we're we're doing that in tandem with uh, with our superintendent. But you know, there's two options on the table. One is obviously face to face and virtual. Um, you know, it's recommended the face-to-face for the first few weeks. I week one through four, depending on what the uh, TA commissioner and uh, you know approves, and then the fifth week, elementary would return, and the sixth week, secondary would return. But um, honestly, I, I really have some some concerns all the way around. Um, for me, I mean, we all want. Uh, I mean, I still have one son in school, mm. um, but but we all want the betterment for everybody. You know, if you have, and we all agree that the children, the students um, are less susceptible to getting sick, but they are susceptible to getting sick. They're, they're not immune. And potentially what if one child or several children, God forbid is asymptomatic. Well, you know, we have an aging uh, workforce and uh, what if, that sick child gets a teacher or teacher's aid or a maintenance worker or a cafeteria worker or a bus driver sick, then we have spread the, uh, the uh, infection to others. And then you've placed families in danger. So for me, we have to have a, a medium of sorts where we protect our staff, where we protect our teachers, our teachers' aides, our bus drivers, our cafeteria workers, because they're, they're constantly in contact so it's trying to find that medium, making sure that it, that child is educated, but also protecting our staff.
0: And is it a fact that teachers are in an older demographic, or is that a myth?
5: No, that, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's a fact. Um, so I'll say this. When you go to the universities, whether when you check them out, whether it's the University of Houston, as you know, which is where, where I hail from, or University of St. Thomas, or Houston Baptist, or Texas Southern, Any of the area universities, holistically looking, you'll notice that public education um, tends to; uh, those numbers seem to be getting lower and lower. And I applaud the students for wanting to go ahead and get degrees in engineering or or or, or business or management or or whatever it may be, marketing, uh, communications, but you know, we still have to fill the ranks, the rank and file inside the classroom. So those are getting tougher and tougher to, to come by. And for Stafford, I'm just, just to let your viewing, uh, your listening audience know, Stafford's sandwiched in between Fort Bend ISD, Houston ISD, A-Leaf ISD. Um, so we're a seven-mile stretch of roadway. So obviously the benefits and the cost for teachers, you know, we're all struggling to go ahead and make sure that we have – you know, the best teacher in that classroom to go and educate our community's children. Never mind the fact that we still have to, all of us together have to holistically, you know, go toe-to-toe with uh, with the charter schools and, and 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 all the others, the private schools. So, um, you know, and they have the affordability and, and more resources, uh, you know, than, than we do in public ed.
0: And those sound like some of the reasons that then if someone likes Teaching there, They're going to stay there, but as you mentioned, you're competing with several school districts. There's 17 school districts that overlap Houston. So as you right. pointed out, there's a big competition to get the, the new teachers that are coming out of school. And like you said, fewer are, are studying um, to be teachers. Let me ask you this. As far as ethnic breakdown, in most schools the number of Latinos in administration or teaching is often lower than the number of Latinos who are in staff, which includes maintenance, bus
5: drivers, etc. Is that the case for your school district? Unfortunately, it is. So, um, you know, holistically, as you had mentioned, uh, I'm part of MASBA, Mexican-American School Boards Association, but I'm also... Part of Go Public, as well as the Gulf Coast Area Association of School Boards, which is you know an organization that holds about 60 school districts uh, within the Gulf Coast region. I'll, I'll say this: that you know we have a number of Latino youth that are in our public schools for whatever reason or another, um, and, and the families have their reasons why they chose public education. I'll say that I appreciate that. That being said. When you look at the breakdown between the students in the classrooms to administration, a management role, whether it's being an AP, excuse me, an assistant principal, a principal or a director of a particular service or program, though Latinos tend to to get lower and lower. Um, So in my opinion, it's just, you know, we need to do a better job holistically, especially in the state of Texas to go ahead and identify uh, Latinos, Latinas, and help groom them and have some type of succession plan in place that we know that we can advise them, hey, look, we believe in you. We want you to go ahead and go from here to there. So if you're a teacher's aide, for example, well, we want you to be a teacher. We want you to excel and, and move up. But, hey, also go ahead while you're at it, go ahead and look at uh, taking the, uh, the test to become an assistant principal or a principal. You know if you're a teacher, you know teacher's aid, you know later on in life, you can do some things. So that's what we want to go ahead and do. And I believe that we need to go ahead and do a much better job of doing that. And of
0: course, you're a natural mentor, but let's be frank, there needs to be there needs to be funding for that. There needs to be training for that. There needs to be a system that's looking for that talent to move them on. Otherwise, as you say, we're we are going to have these numbers that we have. But I bring that up because you're in a leadership position and you understand our community. Additionally, you are speaking up for staff and those may be folks who are not represented, but you mentioned that they're in danger as well. So how are some of those folks at risk or more at risk for COVID-19?
5: Well, you know, the thing is, we're automatically, as most people may know, that public education has had some financial challenging times in the past. Um, so when now you add COVID-19, we have to go ahead and retrofit the classrooms. So whether they're shields, ensuring that we have adequate amount of, of hand sanitizer, wipes, uh, masks uh, on hand for staff and students you know um, that's the thing that we have that's an extra cost that was not identified before then you also have to have uh, taken a place training you know, so these are things that overall you have a tight budget to begin with. And there's only so much that you can go ahead and point to because I've heard the argument from certain people, oh well, you've got the CARES Act. You can just go ahead and buy it and then, you know, you you apply for it. Well, if you get the CARES Act and, and you're successfully being approved for that, you still gotta have a time frame that you've got to wait. So what that time frame is, well, that would I would imagine depend, you know, situationally. When you submitted your request, when, you know, how many people are ahead of you or organizations, school districts ahead of you. So that's all tentatively. And there's only a limited amount of resources and money that you have. So those are things to kind of take into into effect. But when all is said and done as a parent, as a neighbor, um, you know, we have to first and foremost protect our teachers, our staff. Because you and I can go ahead and argue about about budget and bills and talk about that, but once a, a person's wife or a person's husband or, or, or son or daughter gets sick, my God, and what if they're they're put in a you know a respirator, an ICU? That's personal. That's human. That you you can't take that out. God willing, they 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 recover. They do things, but. We need to do a better job of protecting them so we can avoid having them go to an ICU or placing them in a potential danger.
0: And you've brought up funding. What are your views on the threats from the federal level to say that, uh, the threat was <laughs> that if schools don't open, they will be denied federal funding? What's your take on that?
5: <laughs> you know, I got to say this. I, I don't know where they, they, they get that thought respectfully I, I look at this, there's a there's a human factor that everybody has to take into consideration. You know, to, to say you you either do it this time or you don't get any funding is ridiculous because what if a community is more you know susceptible to to having you know community members that have COVID nineteen, but there are other communities that don't have it as much. Why should I start at the same time and infect more of my community's population? That makes no sense to me. Not to mention, again, going back to the ICU, going back to our teachers and our staff. Why do we want to put them in such dangerous peril? You know, and then to go ahead and say you got to do this or you don't get get the money. Well, we weren't getting enough money to begin with, and we were barely making it. As public education as a whole, now they want to go ahead and use that against us. I think it's, you're playing Russian roulette. It's dangerous and it's un- unnecessary.
0: There's been a petition that I've seen floating around and it's directed at the Texas Education Agency and parents are being asked to sign it to request that the Texas well, Texas Education Agency not open completely in the fall. Would you sign something like that as a parent? What are your thoughts?
5: As a parent, I would. Um, and, and as a trustee, I would. You know, as an individual, I definitely would. And I say that for a number of reasons that I just made points to. Um, Stafford is, is a small community. A lot of folks that work uh, are, you know within our school district are also residents uh, of my community. I will see these people at, at H-E-B. I will see these people at Luby's or, or, or other gatherings whenever we we have them and had them in the past. You know, these are, these are friends. These are family members. And I don't want them getting sick. I don't want my son going off to football camp and all of a sudden, you know, a, my son plays uh, defensive line. I, I don't want him to get sick by somebody else that potentially has it, you know. In order to go ahead and curb this and flatten the curve, if you will, we need to do a better job of doing social distancing, wearing masks and things of that nature. And the only way to do that is making sure that the health authorities, we've afforded all the opportunities we can for them. So, yes, I would sign that in a heartbeat.
0: Well, in closing, I know you've got to make a lot of decisions. And I think that's why people need to elect folks that represent the community. What would you like to see the federal government deliver? Because we've talked about limited resources. We've talked about the needs of families. And it sounds like on the ground, you're a capacity. You're doing as much as you can with fewer and fewer resources. Any ideas on how the federal level could come in and lend a hand?
5: Well, I'll say this. And I appreciate you saying that that, that I've got my hands full, which – Holistically, for board trustees, we all have our hands full, but really, it's the boots on the ground, and I have to show my utmost appreciation and admiration for our teachers and our staff. They're the ones, when rubber hits the road, that are there day in, day out. I mean, they get there at seven o'clock in the morning and sometimes they're out at seven, eight o'clock at night and then flip right around and come right back the very next day. What I'd like to go ahead and see from the federal government is loosening and easing off on these threats to public education uh, institutions, school districts. Um, I'd like to see more funding resources made available, federal resources um, you got to think we haven't even talked about the uh, mental health of our students and our teachers and, and our parents, our parents who are having to go ahead and do you know work, sometimes one, two, three jobs at, at times, deal with the day to day goings on uh, of family life and, and the community life. So, you know, right now. Anything would be better than what we have right now, but I definitely would love to see easing of restrictions or threats, uh, 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 defunding public education, and, and working with us to go ahead, provide re- valuable resources, needed resources that we can. And obviously, that's that's base community specific.
0: We've been talking to Xavier Edetta who is a Stafford Municipal School District Board of Trustee. Thanks
5: for all that you do. Thank you very much, Tony. I greatly appreciate you allowing me the opportunity.
4: come back Val-